0: You're listening to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest.
1: But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain?
0: Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept One we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others
2: too. Why might I not be surprised that the first guy to walk on the moon was an Eagle Scout? Well, isn't the moon just really part of the wilderness? I went on two hikes in the Olympics with uh, some of the staff guys. I think the one where uh, this happened was on the first one, which was uh, a climb of deception. So we, we um, did it one weekend, took off and, and climbed deception. And Sputnik had just been put up. And, sir, here we are camped in there. Um, and uh, all of a sudden we see Sputnik overhead. Uh, it's flashing, I think it was tumbling is why it was flashing. It's picking up the, the sun's light. Uh, and it was just plain eerie. It's scary, really, in a sense. The Russians are up there, you know. They put that thing up there, and we didn't. We didn't get up there uh, until after they did. Uh, really kind of scary. This was, this was the Cold War. I mean, to think the Russians are ahead of us. They're up there. At the same time, though, um, it, it was part of a wilderness experience. Because you're out there, you're looking at a very bright sky. You can really see the sky, no lights around, no light pollution. So it, we probably saw it better than most people did. And uh, in a sense, I think I was thinking about what that really means. As an Eagle Scout, they hike places out in the wilderness. They had to really work to get there. And you see, you see the moon from the forest, from the mountains. And it's another part of the wilderness on beyond there. It's uh, like a mountain peak. So they, they get out there and they become the, make the first ascent on the moon, in a sense, like it's a mountain. It's great training because you're very disciplined. You know that uh, you get tired, but you can keep going. Uh, you learn all that as a, as a kid, and it stays with you. I think that um, the history of, of Parsons partly leads up to that.
0: You're listening to Where All Trails End. Stories of Scouting from the Pacific Northwest. In the first episode of this five-episode series, we will learn about the beginnings of an organization and a camp that would go on to leave an impact greater than anyone in those early years could have ever imagined. But first, we need to know what type of impact we're talking about. In this series, we'll hear from the boys that have journeyed west for 100 years to the edge of the Olympic Mountains in Washington State. We will go to a place where thousands of boys have gone, to find scout camp in a week of fun, but many have left, having discovered an even greater treasure. We'll talk with dozens of scouts, scouts still in their youth, but also scouts that have gone on to become servicemen, pilots, lawyers, engineers, statesmen, senators, governors, just to name a few. We will hear from men that have led their communities, served their country, and saved lives. We will mainly focus on telling the stories of Scouts from our 100-year-old Boy Scout camp, Camp Parsons, because of their uniquely rich history and setting. Mainly though, we'll focus on this camp because it embodies what the Boy Scouts of America aims to do. As we will learn, the Boy Scouts are in the business of building character. And as it turns out, the dense Olympic wilderness and the Puget Sound beaches where Parsons resides have fostered an environment perfectly conducive shaping America's youth. Our first story is about a man from Seattle named James Jokey, still an assistant scoutmaster and volunteer at the camp today. He was a Camp Parsons staff member from 1958 to 1962. He delivered thousands of babies as a physician and before his career in medicine, he was a NASA engineer that designed the backpacks of the space boots Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong used to encounter a lunar environment no one had ever before experienced. On that day, July 20th, 1969, when the world watched American astronauts land on the moon for the first time, James Jokey was monitoring and guiding Aldrin and Armstrong from the control room in Houston. I met James at the Seattle Museum of Flight shortly after the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. That's where his spacesuit and all that remains of the moon landing space shuttle were on display as part of a special exhibit commemorating the anniversary. As he toured me around, he excitedly explained all the details, intricacies, and memories he has from his time at work. Afterwards, he sat down and talked to me about how he came to work for NASA and how scouting helped him get there. This is his story. 10, nine, ignition sequence start. Six,
1: five, four, three, two, one. Zero, all engine running, liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11.
0: Seven years before the Apollo 11 spacecraft lifted off, President John F. Kennedy told the nation that we would be going to the moon, not because it was easy, but because it was hard. In the next seven years, over 400,000 Americans would make America's dream a reality. The preparation for the project was enormous. The audacious objective of the mission unprecedented. While hundreds of thousands of American men and women would help accomplish the Apollo missions, only an elite few would be in the control room in Houston, communicating directly with the spacecraft. An even smaller amount would be selected as the astronauts tasked with carrying out those missions. It is no coincidence that Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, was an Eagle Scout. In fact, it is statistically much more likely for any astronaut to have been a scout than having not been. According to NASA, of the 312 pilots and scientists selected as astronauts since 1959, at least 207 have been identified as having been scouts or active in scouting. That's two-thirds of all American astronauts. Of the 24 men who were astronauts in the Apollo 8 and 10 through 17 missions, 20 were scouts. That's 83%. And of the 12 men ever to walk on the moon, 11 were scouts. That's 92% of all moonwalkers. So, as it turns out, when John F. Kennedy compared the moon to a mountain and told America that we were going to climb it, when he told America that we would be embarking on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked, it appears his words piqued many of America's young scouts' interests. Jim Jokey was one of those scouts. He loved adventures in the outdoors so much that he spent five summers working at Camp Parsons. And like Bruce Johnson, the man who earlier described his sighting of the Russian spacecraft Sputnik on a hike in the Olympic Mountains, Jim, his best friend, also had a revelatory moment when the spacecraft flew overhead.
1: As a scout, I enjoyed the outings and the outdoors and uh, always thinking of adventure. In about 1957, I remember this, uh, October 5th, 1957, I was going out for my ordeal uh, when the Sputnik was launched. And all night long, I kept looking for the Sputnik, which was only about 18 inches in diameter. I was going to spot it on a rainy day.
0: Unfortunately for Jim, he never did see Sputnik that day because of the clouds, but his passion for space had been sparked. And according to Jim, his scouting experiences gave him the tools that he would need to pursue that passion.
1: I, I always tell the scouts I have, is a scoutmaster, the fact that you can achieve a goal and that's what scouting. Is. Everybody joins scouts, and in several states. Well, yeah, I think I want to become. Or a lot of them say I want to become an Eagle Scout, but achieving the gold, uh, you know, working your way through the ranks, earning those merit badges, and and doing all the things you need, Star Life and Eagle. It's it's a real project, and but you're achieving a goal and object and learn that through the scouting program, and then uh, going to uh, the University of Washington. I knew that my next goal for me to go work on and on, in Houston or NASA was to satisfactorily get a degree in engineering and then take that on once I got down to NASA to become the number one flight controller for the backpack space AMU was to do all those extraordinary things such as go to altitude chambers, uh, zero G, so that I was the most knowledgeable person and I was ready for any p- complication and problem that
0: happened. It wasn't just drive that Jim had developed, but also an understanding of the grit that would be necessary to advance above the competition. If he was to succeed at NASA, he would need not only to do his job, but be better at it than everyone else. Fortunately, Jim had some experience with starting at the bottom, notably his first year working at Camp Parsons. In
1: 1958, my good friend Ernie Keller and myself, we applied for staff. And we were fortunate enough to be selected for the kitchen crew, which is doing the dishes. We made a whole $40 a month. We're the only paid first-year staffers. And uh, being thrown into a new situation, now we're staff and not campers, all the new environments and people that we met, which became bonds and friendships forever. And uh, during that time, we we found the areas of interest. Mine was aquatics. Ernie was more in, interested in, uh, I think it was the program part, and all that. But uh, we all looked forward to doing different activities and uh, kept returning and returning.
0: Jim used his free time during that first summer at camp to go help the beach chef whenever he could. After all, that was the part of the camp he hoped to someday work in. The beginnings of Jim's times at NASA sounded all too similar.
1: I was selected to work on the backpack, spacesuits, and this whole thing is called EMU, Extra Vehicle Mobility Unit, Extra Vehicle Outside the Vehicle, Mobility You Can Walk uh, Unit. And, uh, and so the, I figured if I gonna be the expert, I needed to know all there was. So I volunteered as a test subject. So I was a suit test subject. I did zero G in the vomit comet. I did uh, centrifuge work, gave my shot uh, with the acu- uh, occupant in my leg. I uh, went to altitude chambers, did all that so that I would know everything is about the spacesuits and backpack when I would be monitoring them when they're on the moon.
0: As it happened, Jim received what he had worked so hard to earn. On July 20th, 1969, he was sitting in the front row of the control room in Houston, Texas.
1: As a flight controller, I'd be in on mission control looking at the data for Neil and Buzz we practice, we practice, we make mistakes, we learn, they give us things. And the way the mission's set up, the doors are locked in mission control and only the people that are important for that part of the mission are there. In just 50 minutes from now, well within the hour, the moon is due to have visitors from another planet. Okay, Neil, we can
2: see you coming down the ladder now. Yeah. Neil, we can see you coming.
1: The the descent was very important and we all listened to it, but we were not in the mission control. And then after the successfully landed, we knew Neil was going to move up the time, and the minute he did, they unlocked the doors, they chased everybody out. And that that's when it really hit me that I'm gonna be walking through that door, sitting on console and be responsible for the lives of two astronauts that are 240,000 miles away. Although the surface appears to be
2: uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it, it's almost like a powder groundman, uh, it's very fine. I'm going to step off the land now. It's one small step for man. I am
3: late for oh, boy. Whew. Boy.
1: <laughs> Wait, we're going to
3: be busy
1: for a minute. <sighs> Wally, say something, I'm speechless. Um, it was a very exciting but very, I would say, anxiety sort of moment. But Julie plugged in, we were all professionals. It worked perfectly. And when it was all finished, the guy sitting next to me in my back, I said, we did it, Joking. and he hit me so hard, he knocked me right out of my chair. When the mission was all over, my backpacks were all thrown out. Once they threw the backpacks out and they're going to sleep cycle and we're through, you you walked out of mission control and, you know, it was almost a depressive as you walked out and you could see the moon and you're starting to think, geez, my God, we did it. They're there. And my backpacks worked. So getting home and trying to sleep that night was really difficult, very emotional. Man's dream and a nation's pledge have now been fulfilled. The lunar age has begun. How easy these words are rolling off our lips now, man on the moon, a walk on the moon, and yet uh, to say the words and to stop just a moment to think about them still sends a shiver up and down the old spine. Going back to scouting, the fact that the leadership, I guess that's what we let out, you know, your assistant patrol your patrol leader, senior patrol leader, working through the merit badge, you're learning how to develop leadership skills and how to educate. These are people who want to accomplish something. You know, they, they have an effort in their mind. In this case, well, I want to begin, but to do that, I'm going to have to do some work. I'm going to have some initiative. I'm going to have to work my way through the ranks. I'm going to develop my work ethics. I'm going to work things along those lines, management, whatever it is. And those are tools that, again, you would use whether you're building an IBM computer or flying an airplane is working your way through the necessary requirements that need to be done to get there. And when we got down to Houston, I always tell Krantz when I see him, you know, after I left, I tell him that when I deliver my babies, I'm using the same protocols and mission rules that we used at NASA, that you satisfy the mission rules or find another doctor.
0: <laughs> Jim Jokey was just 26 years old when the first men landed on the moon. Because of his role in that project, Jokey made the news himself 50 years later. Welcome back. When astronauts Neil Armstrong
3: and Buzz Aldrin stepped onto the surface of the moon 50 years ago, the whole world looked on in awe, but for the men and women back in mission control, the two and a half hours the Apollo 11 astronauts spent exploring was a super high-stress experience. Ballard's Dr. Jim Jokey was there that epic day, right in the front row of mission control, part of the team responsible for developing and testing the moon suits and the backpacks that the astronauts wore, and he joins me now. This is amazing. July 20th, 1969. Humans step foot on another world for the very first time.
1: Very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. And a young man from Seattle is right there with them. The mission was sweet.
3: Jim Jokey was a NASA engineer. My assignment was life support. He helped develop and test the spacesuit backpacks, providing everything needed to stay alive.
0: You're listening to Where All Trails End. Stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest.
2: when I was 11 and a half, because I was one of the first 11-year-old scouts, because they changed the age in uh, the fall of 1949. I, I was a paper boy from my den mother, and, and she told me one time, well, you know, you know they've lowered the age, so you, you can go into scouts because you're 11. So boy, did I ever want to get in, into the Boy Scouts. So I become a scout in about January, uh, 11 and a half, and um, that was before you came to, to camp with your troop, So a lot of times though, boys came together from the same troop, two or three friends. So anyway, at a troop meeting, they hand out a 1950 camp brochure and they say, we're gonna go on the second session. So um, if you're signing up for it, sign up for that one. So I go talk to my mom and she signs me up. And then she says to me a few months later, "Uh, how many other boys are going? I don't know. (laughs) I start asking around and find out nobody's going but me. And I'd never been away from home before, but I, uh, I really like scouts, so I said, well, I'm going to do this. So, they take me down uh, one morning to go to camp, and I get on a boat with a bunch of other kids, because everybody went by boat. And we, we, we got on a boat called the Concordia, and we went through the locks. And then we took this sea voyage of a few hours off to Camp Parsons. Well, if you're only 11, this becomes a magic ride. I mean, this is unbelievable. You're crossing the water. And, and you uh, it seemed like you have been on the boat for hours and hours and hours and hours or days. And we came around the Taunas Peninsula on a nice beautiful day in late June and we could see the Olympic Mountains and all their snow dazzling above the water. And one of the older boys points to the house on the end of the pier, which there was a house on the end of the pier then. And he says, see, see, see that, that's the, the shoreline, that's Camp Parsons. And I'll tell you, it was like I'd gone to Oz or somewhere. It was this magical place. I felt like was totally different from anything that i'd ever experienced before and that's a great way to come to camp but when i was a scoutmaster the old propeller was still running up there the sea scout ship and uh, i brought my boys up on it because i thought i wanted them to have that same wonderful experience of of crossing the sea to camp it was like you're in a whole different world so it was like a paradise for boys i think it, it was just such a great place still is still is
0: 11 year old bruce johnson thought he had gone to oz And i can assure you he's not the only one that feels that way when you're at camp parsons
1: i don't know maybe it's the dust or something but it does it gets it into you hundreds and hundreds of people who um, tell me their stories about when they were a youth and camping at camp parsons and i've heard stories of scouts coming across the puget sound in a boat we don't do that so much anymore, but, I mean, they're great stories um, to hear, and um, it's just got this aura to it. It's hard of hard to explain. I'm not doing it justice, but uh, you really have to experience it. I think when people experience a week at Camp Parsons, they'll get what I'm saying. It's, it's, uh, it just becomes part of who you are.
0: It just becomes who you are. Hmm. If you've never been to Camp Parsons, that line might sound exaggerated. However, his comments speak directly to something I noticed over the dozens of interviews I conducted for this series. So many of the former staff members and scouts told me stories of experiences they had at Parsons that changed their lives. Several told me that their first jobs at Camp Parsons made them who they are today. I emphasize this not only because they told me that, but also because I've witnessed it, in myself and in others. After their youth, many come back to volunteer, to bring their children. Several have held their weddings, and even a few requested Camp Parsons to be their final resting place. They have had their friends spread their ashes over the camp. This documentary series will tell those stories of the boys who have made the journey out to Jackson Cove in Washington State. In this series, I will take you to Camp Parsons. I will welcome you into the world of summer camp. You'll experience some of the songs, the skits, and the program features like the Peer jump. We'll hear about past scouts and staff members, their youth, and their significant contributions they've made to their communities. And maybe some of you will discover what really is at the end of all trails. But if we are to do any of that, we need to first understand the aims of scouting. Because as was made clear by the Apollo 11 story and the 11 out of 12 moonwalkers that were in fact scouts. Scouts from across the country have left a profound impact on America. Camp Parsons is simply the frame of silver, and the apple of gold made beautiful and protected by that frame is the scouting method. Thus, to understand Camp Parsons, we need to understand scouting. When we come back, we'll look at how scouting in America began, the aims it sought to fulfill, and how it spread across the nation overnight to become the biggest youth organization in America. Then, having better understood scouting, we'll turn to Camp Parsons and try to find out what really is so special about that summer camp on Hood Canal. You're listening to Where All Trails End. We'll be back after this. You're listening to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. Yes, we have a campsite. Over on the west side of the canal, Mr. John H. Piper told me in answer to my question. The only canal of any importance I had ever seen was the Chicago Drainage Canal, smelling frankly of its uses, and in my mind there formed the distressing picture of a bare stretch of land on a canal bank, dotted with forlorn tents and perhaps a mess shack. Sadly, I prepared for the trip wondering how such a mistake could have been made by apparently intelligent scout leaders. The next afternoon, we took a steamer across the Sound of Bremerton, a Navy Yard City, and then a stage across the Kitsap County Peninsula. And just at dark, we reached Seabec. Here, cool wind blew in from an expanse of water whose extent was not apparent. What's this, the ocean, I asked? We had certainly come far enough west from Seattle to reach the Pacific, I thought and the lapping of sizable waves on the beach and the name of the little port combined to strengthen the impression. Oh no, said Piper with a hearty laugh. This is the canal. So, this was Hood Canal, five miles wide, a great saltwater arm of the sea. This was the canal on which our camp was located. Thirteen Years of Scout Adventure, Stuart P. Walsh, 1923. Welcome back to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. Later, we will return to Stuart P. Walsh's book. Published almost 100 years ago, it offers firsthand accounts of some of the incredible adventures Camp Parsons scouts experienced during those early years. In the first half of this episode, we heard about how scouting on the Hood Canal prepared a young man to assist Neil Armstrong in landing on the moon. We learned that his scouting background was not unique at NASA. In fact, statistics show It's more likely for an astronaut or NASA engineer to have been involved in scouting than not. Before we hear more exciting stories of the scouts of Camp Parsons, we need to go backwards. All the way to the beginnings of both Camp Parsons and the scouting movement in general. There's no sense in hearing about the impact of scouting if we don't attempt to understand why or how it has affected America. Stories will help us do that, but so will understanding the aims of the Boy Scouts of America, which were composed when it began in 1910. Today, the BSA operates the biggest youth organization in the United States. While scouts are taught the basic history of the organization, few in the scouting movement today fully appreciate the significance of the Boy Scouts of America's unique beginning. Just four years after the Boy Scouts was established in 1910, the organization's fourth annual report announced they were scouts in practically every community in the United States that had a population over 4,000 people. Over 300,000 boys were in Scouts by 1914, and the numbers only continued to grow. So how and why did such a successful organization begin? While the Boy Scouts of America was founded in 1910, the origins of Scouting come from Britain under the leadership of a man named Lord Baden-Powell. In July 1907, a British officer, Lieutenant General Robert Baden-Powell, conducted what must have seemed a rather strange experiment especially for a military man. He took a group of 22 boys on a camping trip to a tiny island off the south coast of Britain called Brown Sea. The boys were an odd mixture, especially for that time, since Baden-Powell had deliberately chosen them from several different classes, farm boys, poor urban kids, and even the well-off. On Brown Sea Island, Baden-Powell divided his boys into four patrols, the curlews, Ravens, Wolves, and Bulls, each boy wore a metal Florida de and if he could pass a few tests, he could add a metal scroll bearing the words, be prepared. What Baden-Powell had founded on that far off little island was nothing less than the Boy Scouts of the world. The lightning fast spread of his movement from nation to nation is a phenomenon of our time. In just three years after Brownsea, the Boy Scouts of America was founded because an unknown English scout guided an American through the London fog, refusing payments for his good turn. When William Boyce returned to the United States, he began laying ground for the organization he would incorporate on February 8, 1910, the Boy Scouts of America. To gain as much backing as possible, a conference was held on June 21, 1910, where 34 representatives from various organizations interested in America's youth came together. They created the First Committee of the Boy Scouts of America. Shortly after, the President of the United States, William Howard Taft, agreed to serve as the Honorary President of the organization. Former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt served as the organization's Honorary Vice President, and several other men with national reputations accepted membership on the National Council. And on February 14th and 15th, this National Council met at none other than the historical East Room of the White House. Is it not fitting and proper that it was in the presence of George Washington's most iconic portrait that these founders of the Boy Scouts of America began writing the Scout law, oath, and badges of the organization. The Scout oath reads then exactly as it does today. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. The Scout law has also not changed. A Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Those words will be published in the first ever Boy Scout of America handbook. That book, according to its 1936 later edition, became the most best-selling book in the United States, second only to the Bible. To gather a better understanding of the time and the ideas being discussed during those Boy Scout early years, I turned to their first few written annual reports. I found the fourth annual report from 1914 explained the aims and tenets of scouting quite well. The report begins by listing the aims and ideals of the organization. It writes, The world interest in the Boy Scout movement challenges the intelligent understanding of everyone, and yet many people still ask, what is scouting? What do Boy Scouts do? The Boy Scout idea is a movement rather than an organization. It aims to supplement existing organizations. The aim of the Scout movement is to inculcate character, which though essential to success in life, is not taught within the school, and being a matter largely of environment is too generally left to chance, often with deplorable results. The Scout movement endeavors to supply the required environment and ambitions through games and outdoor activities, which lead a boy to become a better man and a good citizen. What scouting means? Scouting means outdoor life. And so health, strength, happiness, and practical education. By combining wholesome, attractive outdoor activities with the influence of the scout oath and law, the movement develops character. It develops the power of initiative and resourcefulness. It helps boys and ensures good citizenship. The boy scout movement healthfully and insanely offsets the disadvantages, civilization has caused. Conservation of our national resources is universally approved, but of what value would material resources be unless we conserve the moral, intellectual, and physical future of the coming generation? Prevention is recognized as better and less expensive than cure, and the Boy Scout movement takes the boy at the time of life when he is beset with the new and bewildering experience of adolescence, diverts his thoughts therefrom to wholesome and worthwhile activities. In this manner, our character-building movement has done much in numerous cities to diminish the problem of juvenile delinquency. Doing is learning. We want to help boys on leaving school to escape the evils of blind alley occupations, that is, such work as gives the boy a mere wage for the moment, but leaves him stranded without any trade or handicraft to pursue when he is a man, and so sends him as a recruit to the great army of unemployed, and what is worse, the unemployable. There are two other sections from this report worth noting. One is on the non-military aspect of scouting. To this, it emphasizes and writes, As an organization, the scout movement is not military in thought, form, or spirit. Although it does instill in boys the military virtues such as honor, loyalty, obedience, and patriotism. It also has a section on religious policy where it emphasizes its non-sectarian but religious nature. It writes, The movement has been developed on such broad lines as to embrace all classes, all creeds, and at the same time to allow the greatest possible independence to individual organizations, officers, and boys. The Boy Scouts of America maintains that no boy can grow into the best kind of citizenship without recognizing his obligation to God. The recognition of God as the ruling and leading power in the universe and the grateful acknowledgment of his favors and blessings is necessary to the best type of citizenship. In the education of the growing boy. No matter what the boy may be, Catholic or Protestant or Jew, this fundamental need of good citizenship should be kept before him. According to Scouting Magazine, on June 15, 1916, President Wilson signed a bill into law that granted federal incorporation to the Boy Scouts of America. The BSA was granted a rare Title 36 Congressional Charter, which has been presented to only a select number of patriotic organizations. Other Title 36 organizations include the American Red Cross, the American Legion, the Girl Scouts of the United States of America, and Little League Baseball. According to Scouting Magazine's edition from June 15, 1916, the act was, quote, passed with unanimous consent of both houses of Congress. Clearly, the BSA's mission spoke to Americans from all walks of life, Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, Jews, African-Americans, immigrants, Republicans, Democrats, progressives, union workers, socialists, originalists, they all praised the Boy Scout program in these early years. Curious how such an organization could garner such widespread support, I sat down with Dr. Richard M. Gamble, the Anna Margaret Ross Alexander Professor of History and Political Science at Hillsdale College. I asked Dr. Gamble to take a look at the articles and reports I had been reading and to explain these in context of the time period.
3: Ideas matter, but circumstances also matter. Ideas are lived out, are put into practice in a particular set of social, economic, political circumstances. And it's important that we look back at what was happening in the 19th century, the dramatic change in American life. If we go back to the late 19th century, the levels of urbanization, The levels of immigration, very high in the 1890s. They will reach uh, a peak for their time around 1914, right before the war. We find uh, high levels of industrialization. We have a large urban workforce, much larger than ever before in American history. And these rapid changes and I could add on the railroad and so much more. These rapid changes left many Americans bewildered. The progressives argue that these changes in American life cannot simply be left alone to run their course, to run their natural course. If we think about some of the trends of the late 19th century, some of the anxieties of the late 19th, early 20th century. Widespread, even beyond the progressive movement. Anxiety about America's rapid growth in wealth and well-being in luxury. We can even think all the way back to ancient concerns in Rome about what happens when you become very wealthy as an empire, right? That what comes after that is decadence. And there is a widespread anxiety in in late 19th century America, early 20th century, that material prosperity was making America soft, making America weak. Uh, That especially the, the young men of America, the boys of America, we're not facing the challenges uh and and this was something of a cliche at the time but everybody's talking about the end of the frontier Mm -hmm. the loss of the pioneer spirit uh our young men are being raised in material comfort they don't know the value of a dollar they don't know hard work anymore they are uh protected from becoming
0: full adults. Uh, and some of these, you know, annual reports and founding documents make reference to that. They even use the term juvenile delinquency yes, as one yes. that they are aiming to combat.
3: Right. They're worried about the gangs in urban areas, the the rough crowd and that the boys uh, don't have enough to keep them busy anymore, and maybe that's a reflection of fearing that they don't have chores, they don't have farm labor to help Uh, to help with in the family. So the boys are being neglected. Uh, Their formation, their character formation is being neglected and they don't understand anymore that life is hard work. And you see this everywhere in Teddy Roosevelt, this fear of the loss of manliness. He even defended the Spanish-American War in a speech he gave in 1899 uh, called the strenuous life there it's it's almost an exaggerated version of this fear hmm. we
0: we no longer
3: live the strenuous
0: life so yeah it's it's fair to say then that progressives during that time period at least the early progressives were much more concerned with personal character
3: they, um, yes they were i think that's right even though now this sounds like a paradox yeah because they're talking about collective responsibility They're Hmm. talking about mass organization. But so perhaps it's significant that the Boy Scouts is envisioned from the beginning as a mass organization, as a national organization, and and really part of an international movement for the sake of the next generation. So it's a it's a big solution. It's a, a mass solution to problems that they would also say are matters of individual character. but the the statements there about the faith in god that will be inculcated by boy scouts is intriguing in some ways it's characteristically american it's a kind of civil religion it it is an affirmation in god and morality but it doesn't say anything else it's not There's almost no creed there. There's no theological content to it. It's faith in God. Being reverent is emphasized repeatedly. So being morally upright, and this is connected intimately with good citizenship. But the Boy Scouts are careful there to say the leadership is careful to say you can be Catholic. You can be Jewish. You can be Protestant of any denomination. And perhaps most striking, they identified the Mormon uh, involvement in scouting. And the Mormons were very controversial late 19th century. Uh, And the scouts here are affirming a very broad based religiosity. If I were, if you were to ask me bluntly, was the scouting movement progressive? I was struck by similarities. I was struck by who was active in the organization, whether it's Teddy Roosevelt or uh, Gifford Pinchot is mentioned there. He's part of the conservation movement, which is another big progressive effort that the scouts are Mm -hmm. concerned about caring for natural resources. So there are consistencies from end to end between scouting and the progressive movement. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is inherently progressive, uh, that it is defined by progressivism. I think people from all over the country, all different backgrounds, all different perspectives could easily be part of scouting. There's, There's a strong emphasis there on brotherhood, on like being knit together in in a way, maybe a a national community that they're building They are uh, reinforcing, strengthening the the fabric of America, uh, I think is pretty clear in these documents. And there's even repeated references to helping to build world peace. This is a this is a means to better understanding and brotherhood on a scale, a scope even beyond the United States.
0: Gamble's commentary helps put into context the struggles and concerns Americans experienced at the time of the Boy Scouts founding. It helps us understand both the intellectual roots of the Boy Scouts' aims, but also how such a program appealed to Americans from all walks of life. No doubt, the BSA was founded to cure America's young men from the problems of their time. Among those problems was a changing economy, a larger and more diverse population, and the concern that these changes We're causing America's young men to lose the brotherly affection and sense of purpose needed to be good citizens. But what does all that mean for Americans today? Does America still require the antidote to society the Boy Scouts were established to provide? Is scouting and the values it teaches still effective? In the next four episodes of Where All Trails End, we'll continue hearing stories from generations of scouts who attended and worked at one of the most prominent camps in the country, Camp Parsons. You will get the chance to immerse yourself in the wilderness thousands of scouts have called home. You'll explore a camp rich in traditions carried over by the 101 continuous groups of young staff members that have operated the camp since 1919. Only then will we find those answers.
3: We are Camp Parsons. Our story begins July 7th, 1919,
0: a hundred years ago. The first scouts that summer arrived by boat at the town of Brennan and hiked five miles into camp. During that summer, scouts stayed in army surplus tents in formation around the newly built Booth Hall, a building known today as the Silver Marmot Grill. That first summer saw over a hundred scouts put their outdoor skills into practice, and some of our oldest traditions began. The early years of Camp Parsons, marked a period of great expansion for the camp, both in terms of physical size and attendance. Scouts during those early summers arrived by boat along a newly built 350-foot pier. Lord Baden-Powell, the founder of scouting, came to Camp Parsons as part of a tour of the United States to promote scouting. He was very pleased with what he saw, and Camp Parsons continued to grow to become one of the premier scout camps in the nation.
3: Established in 1927, the Order of the Silver Marmot was originally designed as a reward system to recognize honored campers. Members of the Order can be seen wearing a leather square around their neck as a symbol of their membership. The four sides of the square represent the four-sided responsibility of every member: Duty to God, duty to family, duty to one's own country, and duty to scouting. The Order continues to induct distinguished
0: staff and scouts to its ranks still today. Camp Parsons Scouts, under the leadership of the staff, ventured high into the Olympic Mountains. Those Olympic mountain hikes became permanent program features. Many of the established trails in the Olympic Mountains were first hiked by scouts and staff coming from Camp Parsons. Today, scouts can still go on high adventure treks, whether they cast off by boat and explore the waters of the Hood Canal, or retrace the steps of those original Parsons scouts in the ranges behind camp. We are Camp Parsons. This summer marks our centennial anniversary as well as our 101st summer of consecutive scouting here on the Hood Canal. After 100 summers of serving only boys, we're proud to, for the first time ever, open our program to girls as well. Camp Parsons is one of the oldest and most highly regarded scouting summer camps in the nation. As I speak, the old and the new, represented by these candles, come together to form one. The unifying thread throughout all these years have been the staff and the scouts that represent an unbroken chain dating back to 1919. You are the newest link of this chain. Please be aware of the history and traditions of scouting excellence that surround you. Welcome to Camp Parsons. Just twelve years after Brownsea, in another country thousands of miles away, across a great ocean and a vast continent. A group of boys came trudging down a road that skirted the shore of a pristine arm of the sea. It was the month of July. The boys represented different classes and even different races. They were organized into patrols, and on their uniforms, they wore pins with a Florida lease and a scroll that said, Be prepared. They ended their hike that day at a place called Camp Parsons, and they, like the boys of Brownsea, would never be the same.
2: when Parsons opened in, in 1919, um, we didn't have a tradition of hiking in the mountains, in the Olympics at least. We had one of hiking in the Cascades though, because after the camp closed, a lot of the Parsons scouts from the first summer went on the annual climb of Mount Rainier, which was led by the first camp director. So uh, he leads the, the scouts up there and uh, he got um, 28 kids, near as I can figure from the newspaper reports, he got, got it to Camp Muir which is the jumping off place to climb the summit. Only 14 of them set off for the summit, and, and they all made it. None of them dro- had to drop out. I think they were very careful about choosing them. One of them was 12, and, he, and he, he was also at Parsons that summer. That's a 12-year-old boy. You had to be 12 to be a scout then, and several of them were 13. They were really young kids. So you start out that way, and you can do almost anything. You just, you just you, that grows up into you. Uh, take the challenge. Keep going. we're we're talking about um, 1920 now we we start to explore the Olympics big time and by 21 22 23 they have found Mount Constance uh, or Lake Constance anyway it was referred to as the almost mythical Lake Constance they knew it was there somewhere but try to find it it was very difficult a lot of the trails were um, blazes on trees if you could find the blazes on the trees maps weren't that great Uh, first time they tried to climb the brothers they ended up climbing something and looking across, and there across a deep valley was the brothers.
0: (laughs) With a height of 14,410 feet, Mount Rainier is the fifth highest mountain in the continental United States. And as Johnson mentioned, the feat was considered so incredible back then, the young scouts that summited the mountain that summer made the Seattle papers. In the next episode of Where All Trails End, we'll focus on the Camp Parsons High Adventure Program. We'll tell the stories of the staff and scouts that trailblazed their way through a mountain range that's been called the last frontier of the continental United States. We'll even hear from one young scout who took what he learned in those isolated mountains and applied it to his later work as governor and US senator. A buddy from his time at Camp Parsons, as it would turn out, would end up saving him big at one of his meetings in the Oval Office. If you enjoyed this podcast and want more information, Or if you would like to receive an update when the next show comes out, please log on to www.werealltrailsend.com. That's www.werealltrailsend.com. You can also follow Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D on Twitter. This podcast has been made possible by Hillsdale College. Excerpts from this podcast have been taken with permission from the boys of summer by Michael Bruce Johnson. You've been listening to Where All Trails End. Stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. I'm Ben Dietrich, Camp Parsons staff member and radio host for Radio Free Hillsdale. Thanks for listening.